This is the human side of healthcare, where we explore all aspects of today's ever-changing healthcare environment. Brought to you by the Dallas-Fort Worth Hospital Council and featuring CEO Stephen Love with co-host Thomas Miller. Now, let's make healthcare human again. And welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're here today. You know, Thomas, we're going to talk about something positive and something good. Something that really has come out of the COVID-19 that's been beneficial to the delivery of healthcare is telemedicine. Boy, it sure has. In fact, I'd like to ask our audience, Steve, how many of you through the course of COVID have used telemedicine and what did you think of it? Was it a positive experience? Is it something that you would like to see continued? Because these are some of the issues we're going to talk about over the next few minutes. And Steve, I know we're grappling with a lot of different elements about this that typically you just wouldn't think on the surface. Well, you know what, Thomas, I'm going to give some kudos to the federal government and the state government and some of the insurance companies. And I don't always do that, but I'll tell you what they've done. They have really moved quickly back in March so that they would start reimbursing for telehealth and televisits. They understood some people may not have broadband, may not have internet, so they allowed telephonic discussions with your doc. And the federal government did it through Medicare, the state government through Medicaid, and a salute to the insurance companies. They tried to be very helpful during the COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it made such a huge difference because people are reliant on medications and doctor's advice, and it really kept that flowing as smoothly as possible during an absolute crisis. We're going to embellish this conversation with an expert, Steve, somebody I know you've worked with on the state level, Dr. Thomas Kim. He's the chief behavioral officer and psychiatrist, Prism Health, North Texas. Yeah, and he does a lot of work advising the legislature. He's very, very active in the Texas Medical Association, and they give advice to many of the subcommittees and the committees. They meet routinely with legislators and explain to them the importance of telemedicine. And Steve, you know, Dr. Kim believes that telehealth was, if you will, a forced experiment whose time has come. No question. And I think it has a very bright future. What this past year has done was created opportunity from chaos. To borrow from a a patient of mine who was sort of reflecting on things that he'd learned over this year um, uh, in a post-pandemic world. And he sort of described what he called the gift of the pandemic. I would say that the gift of the pandemic was a meaningful uh, experiment in what telehealth can do. For so long, we've sort of been relegated to the periphery of healthcare. What this last year has given us was a relaxation in some of the regulatory restrictions, allowing more and more of my peers uh, to participate in, experiment with, and uh, engage with their patients in this sort of very new, very, for many, very new and innovative way. Uh, But as many, many more providers have come in, we've sort of seen this differentiation of the field into what I call pure telehealth plays. These are the service-oriented companies that have sprung up offering for some number of dollars an immediate encounter with a doctor of your choice. I think that those sorts of services have uh, filled a vital need, uh, have demonstrated value in uh, allowing people to not miss work or children not to miss school. Uh, But it is very 
different from what I do. Uh, as a practicing physician, I like to see telehealth as something where you have the right doctor at the right time with the right information. And you know, Thomas, Dr. Kim is so right. In fact, if you look at some of the bills that are pending out of the House and the Senate in Austin currently, there are many related to telehealth and telemedicine. It is definitely here to stay. We got to regulate it. We got to reimburse it. We're going to make it work. Dr. Kim has obviously now seen some inevitable pushback in some states. So the big question is, how are we going to make this work? What I think will happen is that we'll discover that you can't quite put the genie back in the bottle. The relaxations in certain regulatory uh, guidelines have led folks to recognize that some of the rules that we had in the past were kind of arbitrary and ultimately inhibited the ability to care for folks in this in this new sort of more efficient, more powerful way. Uh, I'm not naive to say that it's just going to be a free for all and say, oh, everybody should, you know, kind of care for folks however they wish. Uh, in point of fact, uh, a year in, I'm actually starting to see a little bit of pullback from uh state and federal houses around the country. Uh, I believe I saw in my newsfeed recently that there are a couple of representatives from the North, the Pacific Northwest who have raised very understandable concerns around fraud and abuse and uh, don't really feel comfortable about the relaxation and the regulations. Telehealth is certainly a great tool in the toolbox. It's new, but you know what? If physicians use it the way it's intended, They'll treat the patients virtually just like they would treat them if they were in their office. What I'd like to see happen is that we continue uh, what we have been doing even pre-pandemic, which is to demonstrate that telehealth is healthcare and that a more helpful frame in looking at how to manage and regulate it is that telehealth is really a skill to be mastered. And as a uh, provider of that skill, it's up to me to use my best judgment on when to apply it and when to not, which is simply just another way to say that telehealth is not a silver bullet. It's not to be applied universally, nor is it uh, a replacement for conventional services. It's simply one way that, that me as a doctor can care for my patients the best way that I can. You know, Thomas, we know there are benefits associated with this. We've talked about it, but we got to realize too It's kind of between, and I hate to say it, the younger people and the older people. We found that many of the baby boomers and Medicare weren't quite as comfortable using it as some of the younger people with commercial health plans. We've got to change that mindset and explain to everyone this is good health and it's also good medicine and it's going to be good for the future. Telehealth offers a remarkable efficiency and power in being able to deliver a service, Uh, but the world remains imperfect, so no-shows continue to be a struggle uh, for telehealth providers just like conventional providers. Uh, But ultimately, uh, where I think we see the the most efficiency is in the sort of indirect uh, areas where we're, we're not losing the productivity from having to blow a half a day of work and never see your doctor or losing a day of school. If you were to account for those benefits and uh, efficiencies, I think it, it makes a strong argument for telehealth. You know, Thomas, we've come a long way in technology. We can implement this, but look at the future. Look at artificial intelligence. Look at Fitbit. 
Look at all the things people have that we could tie into your phone, your Fitbit, et cetera, and we would have digital data and make good healthcare decisions. You know, there's a book that uh, columnist Tom Friedman wrote about four or five years ago called Thank You for Being Late, and the title has nothing to do with the topic. He was talking about the technological revolution that began in 2007, and a lot of the things that you just mentioned have developed over this period of time, and what Thomas Friedman was advocating is we are just at the beginning of this technological revolution. Absolutely. No question about it. Well, it's a topic that deserves a little more conversation. So when we come back, we're going to continue this with Dr. Kim on telemedicine and then weight loss for the second half of the show. Stay with us. This is the human side of healthcare on 1080 KRLD and the radio.com app, where we feature healthcare's hottest topics and what our North Texas area hospitals are doing to make healthcare human again. Welcome back. We're talking with Dr. Thomas Kim. He is a telehealth advocate and also the chief behavioral officer at Prism Health North Texas. And as he uses telehealth in behavioral health, it's a great mechanism to break down the barriers and the stigmas associated with behavioral therapy. You know, one of the things we're really striving to do to educate the public is to please remove the stigma associated with behavioral health treatment. And I know people uh, are doing their best to do that. Do you think telehealth will help in removing that stigma? I I do. Uh, Early on in my career, um, it was routinely sort of mentioned that one of the things that improves engagement utilization of behavioral telehealth care uh, is the fact that folks no longer have to worry about having their car spotted in the parking lot of a psychiatrist in their communities. I think that we've continued to evolve to the point where folks not only are, uh, feel more comfortable engaging with their providers through technology, but culturally, I think that we've grown to accept this new way of communicating uh, that's only been reinforced with the, the need uh, during our pandemic to, to engage with each other at a, at a distance. Stigma is, is a much broader uh, issue to tackle uh, that, uh, unfortunately, we probably don't have sufficient time for. Uh, but the short answer is yes. I do believe that telehealth can help to reduce stigma and improve the delivery of behavioral health care. You know, you really have a good background in telehealth. And as we do a deeper dive, say, into true technology, to help our listeners put this in perspective, how would you say we've advanced in technology, even looking at an iPhone versus where we were years ago? I I think you've hit probably one of the most interesting milestones in the field of telehealth. Uh, I I like to quote the statistic that uh, an iPhone 6, which at this point is a bit of a dinosaur technologically, has the power to run 120 million Apollo-era space flights. Um, 120 million. Uh, that is unbelievable. 120 million. It, truly, uh, it, it's it's all the more remarkable. I was in utero when we landed on the moon, and I, I have always had an interest in our space program and discovery in general. Uh, and so, for such an extraordinary feat, it really uh, it really gives you some perspective on the power of the technology in our pockets, uh, and because technology has continued to thrive and grow you know, outside of healthcare, uh, 
those in the healthcare space have only benefited from it. I have for many years now never worried about technology with the exception of broadband connectivity. But, uh, you know, I, I continue to engage with my patients in simpler, more effective ways. You know, when I first started, we used rigs that cost tens of thousands of dollars. Now I can engage with my patients meaningfully on my phone. It's, it's pretty remarkable. You know, we could go into a very long discussion, but I want to ask you something because prior to the pandemic, one of the things that I heard from many providers, we like telehealth, but we cannot get reimbursed by the insurance companies for it. Is that improving? That, that is arguably the biggest prohibition or challenge that we've faced over the years. In this last year, both here in Texas and all over the country, uh, there was, in fact, uh, a relaxation or, or uh, an allowance for reimbursement for telehealth care, given the fact that everybody recognized it was vitally important to continue to see your doctor. Uh, that included things like telephonic, which uh, I should point out, I have uh, no issue with the phone. It's a very powerful tool, but in most jurisdictions, Texas included, the telephone historically has been insufficient to engage with somebody and expect compensation or reimbursement for it. Because video chat solutions are so abundantly available, I personally don't see that as a, uh, as a stumbling block moving forward. But the reality is, is that um, there has been a slight relaxation and reimbursement over the last year. I'm kind of curious to sort of watch the data come in as we retrospectively look how many of my peers took advantage of it. And moving forward, we have a couple of different levers happening. One is a continued conversation about reimbursement parity, which this legislation will most certainly take up as well as the idea that, at least from the federal level, CMS has recently revised coding requirements with, with the broad intention of making it easier to document and thereby making it easier to be reimbursed. I think those thing, two things together will help us to sort of solidify and reinforce both service parity and payment parity, and again, make telehealth just one of the, the skills or one of the tools in your doctor's tool bag. Dr. Kim, this is Thomas Miller. I've got a question for you. As we think now in terms of patients being more consumers of healthcare, does telemedicine in some way make it more inviting for people to develop a rapport and a relationship with their doctor without those barriers of having to go to the clinic and having to wait in the waiting room and go through all the typical things of the experience of going to the doctor? So um, I am just old enough to straddle these two very uh, different cultural uh, considerations of what the doctor-patient relationship. Um, We sort of went in training from a more patriarchal, uh, hierarchical relationship to this more consumer-driven, client-customer-driven relationship in healthcare. In either case, I think that what patients request or desire most is to be heard. And that's one of the many reasons why I've devoted my life to telehealth. I I talk about how technology is powerful and efficient, a variety of other things. Telehealth is so much more than replicating a conventional encounter. Uh, The example I usually draw from is that with my private practice patients, for example, uh, they are free to text me anytime 
with questions about their medicine, a variety of other things, and I'm pretty responsive. And in doing so, I'm able to keep them on their care path, maintain compliance, and a variety of other things, rather than uh, alternatives in a conventional sense where you go back to see your doctor in three months saying, yeah, I started a medicine after a week, it didn't make me feel good, so I stopped. And three months down the line, you're back to square one. By keeping somebody on their path, I'm actually um, allowing more more of my sort of finite clinical time to see new patients or patients with with genuine like critical issues, uh, and it broadly, it it sort of to my mind walks towards what a lot of people talk about, and very few can actually define for me this this notion of value based care. Uh, I think healthcare delivery in general will be very different. I think patients will ultimately be more partners than they will be patients or customers or clients, uh, you know, because technology is going to allow us to get them to be more accountable, more engaged and participative in, in their own wellness. And then what's missing in telehealth now? Uh, missing. I can't say that I'm missing anything. Uh, there are a number of things that I would like to see happen, uh, to speak to the idea of uh, care delivery in general. I like to work in a collaborative team based in my work at PRISM. Uh, the reason uh, I'm the sort of the first uh, chief behavioral health officer for a uh, traditionally medical practice. And what, what they want is a behavioral health service line embedded within their medical practice. That sort of integrated collaborative, however you want to choose to, to describe it, is exactly the kind of healthcare models that I'm drawn to. I think that it's why I did a uh, combined residency in internal medicine and psychiatry. It is, it is how I think we should care for folks. When I, when I talk about broadband internet, the likely Secretary of Transportation, uh, Secretary Buttigieg, uh, recently came out in favor of uh, the dig once strategy towards uh, improving our infrastructure. What that means is as we update our roads, he is strongly advocating that we lay in fiber so that we only have to dig up the roads once. Uh, it's that sort of looking over the fence approach um, that when I have my conversations in the, on the governor's council, we really talk about it. It's like, how can healthcare work with agriculture, work with education to pool our finite resources and get more bang for whatever investment we have? It? That's what I'd like to see. So it's not so much that we're missing pieces. I'd like to use the pieces better. Dr. Thomas Kim, psychiatrist and chief behavioral officer at Prism Health North Texas. Thank you. You know, Thomas, this has been a great discussion. And I'll tell you why I'm real excited. When you talk about virtual health or telemedicine, many times in the past, people couldn't exactly visualize it, no pun intended. But seriously, now that they've seen the benefits of it in COVID-19, I think at the state level and the federal level, you're going to see people work very conscientiously to improve telehealth, telemedicine, and it's going to be best for the patient. And now, you know, we've got another segment coming up. Uh, by the way, Thomas, this segment's going to be dealing with dieting. How's your diet? Ugh. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm doing everything I can. I've got a goal and I'm slowly inching toward it. I got to admit, I could use some help. Inching toward it or inching from it? Yeah, what day of the week is it? <laughs> hey, but help is on the way. We're going to be talking with Dr. Valerie Liao. She's a non-surgical bariatric physician at Medical City Dallas who is going to tell us how to eat to lose the pounds. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. 
The DFW Hospital Council, along with our over 90 member hospitals in North Texas, are proud to bring you the human side of healthcare with Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome to the human side of healthcare. We're delighted you're with us today, and we want to have a discussion today dealing with obesity and some of the problems associated with it. We're delighted that we've got Dr. Valerie Liao with us. She's a non-surgical bariatric physician at Medical City Dallas. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. You know, if, if you could help our listeners understand and comprehend just how bad the obesity epidemic is, not only in this country, but here in Texas. Sure. I'd like to actually step back and um, give a chronological perspective of weights in U.S. adults over the last 50 years or so. And if you were to pull out a graph of weights in U.S. adults, you would see that back in the 1960s, about 10% of all U.S. adults were carrying extra weight with a body mass index above 30 in the 1980s and the 1990s, this continued to increase, and this has increased so far to the point where by the year 2030, it is projected that we will have a 50% adult obesity rate in the United States. In Texas, we're also seeing high numbers because, of course, we're part of the United States. Um, we don't have quite the same set of projections available for Texas alone, but I can tell you that in 2013, the Texas Department of State Health Services calculated that 30.9% of Texas adults had the medical disease of obesity. So that was one-third of the people in 2013. In another piece of data, they indicated that the prevalence was 31.7% in 2010. But currently, the overall prevalence of obesity in adults in Texas is at about 35%. You know, that's amazing. Thomas and I actually uh, have done some interviews recently, and we talked with an expert on maternal mortality. And they even indicated then that, unfortunately, some women that are obese as they deliver the children experience maternal mortality. So that's probably one of those diseases you're talking about. Yes. And, you know, the other side of that is that there are more women who suffer from obesity that are also suffering from infertility. So they have difficulty conceiving, or if their husbands suffer from obesity, they may also have difficulty fathering a child. You know, that's an excellent point. And we've interviewed different people on the human side of healthcare for different reasons. When we talk about behavioral health or mental health, we always talk about we need to remove the stigma associated with it. We know obesity is a disease, and we should be very supportive of people that suffer from that disease. We should not stigmatize them. So as a physician... Is obesity a failure of willpower? No. Obesity is not a failure of willpower. It is a medical disease. It's recognized by medical associations, by the health insurance industry, 
and by numerous scientific associations and groups. The difficulty with stigmatizing people for having that medical disease of obesity is that now you are blaming the victim. It's almost like saying, well, gosh, you got hit by a truck because you were standing in the wrong spot. It's not fair to the victim. You know, that's a very good point, and uh, I think all of us, and especially our listeners, we, we need to make sure that, that we don't stigmatize people that are obese. You know, speaking of that, and then speaking of some of those diseases that you mentioned, what are some of the common obesity-related conditions that you see some of your patients struggling with? Unfortunately, we can see that there are increased rates of PCOS, which is polycystic ovarian syndrome, increased rates of diabetes, high blood pressure, elevated cholesterol, vascular disease, lots more arthritis, and there are over 13 different kinds of cancer that are associated with increased risk when you have increased weight. You know, you, you talk to people, especially they start New Year's resolutions, I'm going to lose weight, etc. How much weight, in your opinion, do people need to lose to be healthy? That's different for every person. And generally, when we are seeing something on the order of a 5 to 10% weight loss, that's often enough to benefit the health whether you see the blood pressure starting to come down, the cholesterol getting better, the blood sugars getting better, the weight is coming off of the joints, all of those different things are individually impacted by how much weight is lost and what that person is doing in other areas of their lives. So to say that if you lose weight, your sleep apnea will absolutely go away, there's not a 100% guarantee on that. But could it get better? Sure could. If you lose weight, is your arthritis going to go away? Not necessarily because some of the pain that you have is from damage that's already been done. But what if you are taking weight off of those joints? It's still going to benefit you because now you're not putting that same number of pounds of pressure on those joints that have already had damage over time. So yes, you can still get some benefit out of losing weight. Even if you don't get down to your high school weight, let's just say you take off 10 pounds. For a joint, that's like taking 20 pounds off that joint. When you think in terms of obesity and weight loss, you know, obviously diets come to mind, exercise come to mind. Which is better for weight loss, diet or exercise? Diet is definitely the way to go. One of the sayings that I've heard people say is, you get thin in the kitchen and you get fit in the gym. Another way to look at that is, what is one of our most valuable resources? It's time. And if you don't eat something, you don't have to spend the time working it off. Another way you could look at that is, what if you eat a slice of pizza? That's an hour and 23 minutes of walking for three to five miles per hour. Who eats just one slice of pizza? Not a lot of people. Who has that kind of time to be walking every day to take that pizza off? Pretty much no one. So my recommendation is change the way you eat first. 
You know, that's a that's good advice. So let me ask you this. What about the time of day? I would assume eating late at night right before you go to bed is not the thing to do. Do you have thoughts on when you should eat? I totally agree with you on that one. If you're getting ready to go to bed, what's going to happen? You're going to be asleep. You're not going to be moving a lot. If you're putting food in at that time, your body is not going to be expending a lot of energy to work off that food. So what's it going to do? It's going to store the leftovers, and they're going to get stored as body fat. So ideally, you would like to stop eating earlier in the evening, several hours before you're planning to go to bed. You know, we've all experienced for almost a year now, unfortunately, COVID-19. Have you seen through some of the patients that you've treated, and you may not have formal statistics on this, has there been an increase in people gaining weight during this COVID-19 pandemic? Absolutely. I think one of the ways that people characterize this is that when COVID first started, they thought, oh, this is going to be over in a couple weeks. I am going to hunker down with some bags of chips and my favorite ice cream and it'll be good, and I'll emerge, and it was just like a long vacation. But then COVID kept going on and on, and people kept buying bags of chips and ice cream. Then the weight gain started, and here we are, several months into it and many pounds later. So unfortunately, COVID has definitely been a weight gainer for a lot of people. Now, on the other side of the coin, there are some people who decided, you know, if I'm going to be stuck in my house, I am going to get on that treadmill or I'm going to get on that stationary bike or I'm going to start to change the way that I choose my foods. And those other people are planning that when they come out of the other side of COVID, they're going to look better, thinner, feel lighter than they were when they went in. So it's really a matter of how you want to look at it. If you want to put that positive spin on it and say, hey, all of us humans, we got to hunker down for this COVID thing. But when we come back on the other side of it, we want to show the world that we've changed and that we've changed for the better, then more power to them. Those are the kind of people that are going to take the weight off during COVID. You know, you uh, brings up some excellent points. I was talking to a friend of mine, and she said that since she's been at home, she started cooking more, having fresh fruit and vegetables for her children, and they're eating much healthier now than they did previously when they were running place to place and do a drive through at fast food. So great advice. Oh, absolutely true. You know, when you look at statistics for the state of Texas, it's really interesting to see that the percent of people who are consuming fast food in a given week is higher in the areas with more prevalence of the medical disease of obesity. So even though we recognize it as a medical disease, we do know there are parts that we have control over. And one of those things is cutting down on the fast foods, the highly processed foods, going back to food that's closer to what it was like in nature. So preparing fresh fruits and vegetables, actually cooking your own meats, those are going to be better than choosing to have things like cereal out of a box or a bag of chips. Great stuff from Dr. Valerie Liao, non-surgical bariatric physician at Medical City Dallas. 
When we come back, Dr. Liao is going to go through our refrigerators and tell us how to eat to lose pounds. That's next on the Human Side of Healthcare. We're continuing our conversation on how you can empower yourself to have the best health possible in today's ever-changing healthcare environment. This is the human side of healthcare with DFW Hospital Council President and CEO Stephen Love and co-host Thomas Miller. Welcome back. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Valerie Liao. She's a non-surgical bariatric physician at Medical City Dallas about how we can trim a few pounds. And we're going to start with what may be a surprise answer to the question, are you an advocate of a plant-based diet? No. I actually am an advocate of low-carb intermittent fasting. Oh, please explain. Sure. So with low-carb and intermittent fasting, what you want to do is take advantage of the body's natural chemicals and the reason that we store body fat to begin with. So if you were to imagine humans back in caveman days, no refrigerators, right? So if we eat a chicken, if there are any leftover pieces of chicken, we don't have a refrigerator to put it in. So what are we going to do? We're just going to gobble down those last few pieces of chicken. What's our body going to do? It's going to store those leftovers as stored body fat. And so then what happens when later on this caveman doesn't have any food? How do I stay alive? How do I survive? I am burning stored body fat so that I have the energy to look around and find some other food to eat. But how does that work when you're talking about low-carb intermittent fasting? Intermittent fasting means that there are times where you have a full stomach and there are times when you have an empty stomach. And the times when your stomach is full, that's a feast. The times when your stomach is empty, that's a fast. If you have food in your stomach, the body's going to put out insulin. The insulin is going to send signals to the muscles. Take some of this food, use it for energy now. It's going to send signals to the liver. Take some of these carbohydrates chain them up as glycogen, store them in the liver. You can use that for energy later. And then it sends a signal to the adipose tissue. That's the body fat. And it says, okay, take all the rest of these leftovers, store them up, you might need it for later. So then when later comes and there's no food in my stomach, my body can say, okay, I'll take some of this glycogen and use it. And then I'll take some of the stored body fat and I'm going to melt it down and use that for my energy source. So why does low carb help? Because if you're not storing as many carbohydrates in that liver, then you can start breaking down the stored body fat sooner and using that for your energy source. What about the intermittent fasting? How does that help? That is more of the way that humans have lived throughout time when we didn't have a lot of food availability. So right now, we might have three meals and three snacks or three meals and unlimited snacks. But every single time we eat, our body is sending out a signal of insulin. And insulin, again, is that fat storage hormone. So if you keep sending your body six insulin signals in a day, 12 insulin signals in a day, it doesn't have time to move out of fat storing mode. And what it's going to do is it'll keep storing the fat. So if you have less meals in a day, and you cut out the snacks. So let's say you're having just two or three meals a day. You cut out the snacks. Now your body has fewer insulin signals. It's going to have more opportunity to burn the stored body fat. That's why I recommend low-carb intermittent fasting. What is it about plant-based diets you don't like? 
usually there's two different things that I worry about with plant-based diets. I don't have anything against animals. I love animals. But the difficulties are people have trouble getting enough protein in their diet when they're on a plant-based diet. And they also have some difficulty with getting certain key nutrients like a certain level of vitamin B12. Because vitamin B12, the most readily bioavailable form of that is going to be from animal protein. So when you are on a plant-based diet, you don't get that. And you're going to have to either supplement with shots or sublingual B12. If you are on a plant-based diet, the other difficulty is now you're probably not getting the same amount of protein and often you're going to try to replace that with carbohydrates. And sure, there are going to be some people who are going to take food as it is closer to nature. So, for example, they might be having brown rice or whole wheat or beans or uh, fruit that doesn't come from a can and isn't swimming in syrup. However, you're also going to have that other group of people who their only criteria for I am on a plant-based diet is this food does not contain any animal contents. So they'll be having fruit swimming in syrup. They'll have white bread. They'll be eating white rice. And what happens is in searching for the nutrients that they need, they'll probably find themselves consuming a lot higher quantity of carbohydrates and they're not necessarily going to be quality carbohydrates. Rather, they'll be the kind of carbohydrates that will trigger more storage of body fat over time and it'll trigger rise in insulin resistance as well. So those are the reasons that I'm really not an advocate of a plant-based diet. Now, can you have a plant-based diet and still lose weight? Yes. Can you have a plant-based diet and do low-carb intermittent fasting? Yes you really have to be more careful and mindful of your choices as well as trying to avoid some of those vitamin deficiencies. So I'm not saying that no one should be on a plant-based diet. Everyone's different. I mean, to imagine how many billions of people we have on this planet and to say that we all need to eat exactly the same way. And so everyone has to figure out what works for them, but some of it has to do with awareness and conscious choices. And if your conscious choices are, I'm not going to work on what I eat and I'm only going to eat it if it tastes good, well, you may have worse health consequences down the road. If you're saying, I'm going to choose a careful plant-based diet and I'm going to listen to my body and I'm not just going to eat because I'm bored, then yes, you can have a good outcome. Here's the thing. I really recommend that if you are eating, eat because you're hungry. And if you're not hungry, then that's the time to stop eating. I like to keep things simple. So I'd like to invite you into my kitchen. And would you walk me through this low-carb intermittent fasting? Tell me what to put into my new storage bins in my fridge. And when should I go get them? Sure. I think if you were wanting to do low-carb intermittent fasting... One of the things that you should be thinking about first is, if you're not hungry, don't eat. And then you want to think about, okay, I'm probably going to have two or three meals in a day in an eight-hour window. That's generally where people start when they're doing an intermittent fasting regimen. Sometimes people end up with fewer meals than that per day, 
Sometimes they even go with longer fasts. I don't recommend just jumping into that, but when you start to read about intermittent fasting, you'll learn that there's more than one way to do it. And then if you want to get your kitchen ready for a low-carb lifestyle, I would recommend focusing on healthy protein, healthy fats, vegetables. If the proteins that you like are going to be things like poultry, whether it's chicken, turkey, or fish, or if you like beef or pork, those are fine. If you like dairy, that's fine. Avocados, butter, olive oil, cheese, those are good. Then for vegetables, okay, above-the-ground vegetables are going to be a better choice in terms of carbohydrate content rather than below-the-ground vegetables. You don't want to count corn as a vegetable. You want to count corn as a grain. So grains like wheat, rice, oats, barley, corn, those are things that you want to have off to the side. You probably don't even want to eat them if you can avoid them because what you want to be focusing in on is your proteins, your healthy fats, your vegetables. And then what you'll find is that these proteins, the fiber from the vegetables, the healthy fats, they're actually going to be more satisfying and keep you feeling fuller for a longer period of time. You might have had experiences in your life before where maybe you've had a cinnamon roll for breakfast or a bowl of cereal or a bagel. And then what happens in an hour and a half to two hours? You're hungry again. But what if you have something like an omelet that you made with eggs and cheese and bits of sausage and spinach? You're probably going to stay full longer. I don't think you'll be hungry in an hour and a half. Thank you, Dr. Liel. Those were fantastic tips. Hopefully you will take note of those, help you lose weight. It'll improve your health. We so appreciate you being with us. Stay safe and be back here next week.